Are you ready to begin your journey out of the realm of just theories and into a world of excitement and experience that only comes with braving the unknown? Join us as we speak to entrepreneurs who have faced the challenges of successfully creating businesses at home as well as abroad. Whether it's arts, services, or tech, from Shanghai to Tokyo, Bangkok to Mumbai, we'll help you find your inspiration and turn it into action. Get ready for Asia Biz Stories, Entrepreneurs in Action. Now welcome your host, Neville J. McKenzie. Today's conversation is with Glenn Van Zutphen, the founder of Van Media Group, a company he founded over 12 years ago and based on his knowledge of over 25 years as an international journalist. The mission he chose is to guide thought leaders to significantly shape their organization and industry by creating and communicating provocative and memorable messages across digital and traditional channels for news media interviews, conferences and TED Talks. Now, due to the rise of social media and the rise of social selling, the need for entrepreneurs to get to grips with what is happening is on the rise. Literally anybody can buy these days with just a few hundred dollars, maybe a little bit more, depending on the kind of gear you get. Uh, and then put together a podcast like this or any kind of a news story and upload it, whether it's on your own website or on Stitcher or any number of podcast hosting sites. In comparison, in the past, being an entrepreneur or business executive was a lot simpler and easier. Now, the ability to communicate credibly both personally and professionally is exponentially increasing as social selling becomes more demanding. Generally speaking, executives don't like to see themselves on TV or hear themselves on the radio, or they don't really like this idea of exposing themselves externally to whatever, whatever audience it is. So from that perspective, there was a bit of hesitation on most people's you know, the reaction. In this conversation, which was recorded at the 1880 Members Club in Singapore, we get a brief insight into the thoughts of one of the top media professionals in Asia. So now, without further delay, let's begin. Hi, I'm Neville J. McKenzie, and I'm with Glenn Van Zutphen. Glenn, can you introduce yourself? I'm Glenn Van Zutphen. I am the founder of Van Media Group Private Limited. We are an organization that does executive media training, presentation skills, coaching, and corporate videos for mostly multinationals, but we also work a lot with uh, SMEs and also increasingly with entrepreneurs as well. You're here in Singapore. Can you just tell us how you arrived in Singapore? From You graduated in media studies, was it? It's a long story. I'll try to make yeah. it as quick and hopefully somewhat interesting. Uh, my degree was in journalism from the University of Southern California. Shortly after school, I first traveled to Japan. I lived in Japan for about six years and worked as a journalist there for both Japanese media and also for American media, uh, American ABC News Radio and USA Today as their Far East correspondent. Uh, and that journey took me from Japan after six years to Europe. I lived in Switzerland for a year. And then I came back to Asia around the time of the, the handover of Hong Kong back to China in 1997. And I worked there uh, for first an affiliate of CNN International. And then I worked for CNN International itself in Hong Kong. Uh, that job took me back to Atlanta to work at CNN Center in, uh, in, uh, in the States 
And then about 15 years ago, I came here to Singapore with CNBC Asia as the regional news editor for, uh, for that organization. Uh, fast forward about 12 years ago, I, uh, I left and started this media consulting company that I have now, Van Media Group, and decided that we would uh, take the skills and the knowledge that I had learned as an international journalist for over 20 years, almost 25 years, and use it to help um, corporates, nonprofits, government agencies learn how to better present the information that they had to present to whatever audience they were talking to. Why did you feel you needed to make the change from being a working journalist to creating your own media company? Great question. I'm a news junkie at heart. I mean, it's, it's all I did for my career. I loved it. I lived around the world doing it, covering amazing stories, everything from natural disasters to man-made disasters to government to economics to sports, everything. And I truly, truly enjoyed the work that I did. The, the opportunity came up, though, um, here in Singapore. It was at a time in my life personally that my then-girlfriend, now-wife, were getting married. We were having our first child. And we, the realization was that journalism was obviously changing dramatically 15, even 20 years ago, going to a much more corporate, uh, bottom-line-driven industry. And it was, it was taking a direction that I wasn't entirely happy with. Um, and so it seemed like a natural time to step away from daily journalism and move on into uh, a business that I could control more myself for my family life and, uh, and also hopefully give back something that was useful to people uh, from skills that I had learned over the course of my career. So that's interesting because my own background, I was a hardware engineer. For somebody like me that's entering media what do you think media can offer somebody like me that um, doesn't have that journalism background um, wants to inform people about what's going on also doesn't have the time or feels it doesn't have the time and wants to learn on the job what would you recommend to somebody like me Neville, the mere fact that we're sitting here having this discussion and we're sitting here at a table and you've got all your gear out in front of us your recording gear and gear that literally anybody can buy these days with just a few hundred dollars, maybe a little bit more, depending on the kind of gear you get, uh, and then put together a podcast like this or any kind of a news story and upload it, whether it's on your own website or on Stitcher or any number of podcast hosting sites, is, uh, I think that says volumes about where the media industry has, has come and the ability for for literally anyone who's interested in sharing information with the world to be able to do that. Now, of course, the, the challenge is how do you monetize it, right? How do you actually make a living from it? Uh, and that is a question that many people that are uh, doing this kind of work are, are struggling with and, and trying to figure out sponsorship, advertising, etc. But the mere idea of you being able to take a story that you're personally interested in and share it with, you know, potentially infinite number of people is a very exciting idea and technology and the media landscape that we have evolved to today has made that possible. So what type of skills do you think I should work on? Oh, good question. Obviously, you've already been doing it with some 45 podcasts that you've put together to date, um, interviewing skills, being curious. And, and that, for me as a journalist, was always the thing that um, was the easiest 
I guess, quality for me to have uh, as, as a journalist was being curious because I'm naturally that way. I was always wanting to find out so what actually was going on with a, with a given story. Now, of course, there are good ways that you can do that job and there are ways that aren't so good depending on who you are and what kind of skills you have, skill level you have. But being curious is the first, the first uh, jumping off point. And that's what I found um, because I've, I'm naturally a curious person, hmm. but I didn't realize how important that would be um, in terms of driving me with this what started out as a hobby um, and now is looking like it could be um, a new aspect of my career. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And if I can just uh, interject there, what you're, the process you're going through right now with your podcast is figuring out, first of all, what your voice is, right? Yeah. What, is, what is the voice of this podcast? Who are you talking to? Who's your audience? Who do you hope your audience will be? Um, why will people listen to you uh, in addition to or instead of the hundreds or thousands of other podcasts that are available to people? Because, I mean, you know, it's a very crowded landscape when it comes to podcasts. We, we all have a lot of choices. So there, there are some interesting waypoints along the way of your journey to figure out how to be both personally successful but also professionally successful. So this... Just move on to something like what you call fake news. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah. um, this is one of the things that sort of worries me in yeah. terms of um, what I'm trying to do. In that being a credible source, I'd like to be a credible source. Um, but I do understand that there are lots of um, sources that are not so credible. So how do I build that credibility, which you obviously have from your journalism credentials, uh, where people will look at you and they'll look at your track record and say, oh, you've worked for CNN. Um, this is a credible journalist. How do I build that? Unfortunately, the, this whole idea of fake news has taken on new importance over the past couple of years, especially. Um, and to be honest, mostly because of Donald Trump and the way he has used fake news uh, in, his, in his political life. Now, I will leave it to your listeners to decide whether he's used it appropriately or inappropriately, but the fact is he has used that phrase, that term, um, a lot and, and made it part of the mainstream. So much so that we have other politicians now and other people that are using it. Uh, the President Duterte in the Philippines and the, uh, and the uh, uh, Venezuelan president, I mean, pe politicians across the world are, are using the term fake news Many times, let's be honest, it's, it's in relation to stories that they don't like about them or things they're doing, and so they're trying to discredit whatever it is that's being, that's being done. In some cases, uh, they are correct. In some cases, journalists or um, fake journalists or people that want to be journalists do, are doing a bad job and, and, and are creating news that is not true. That, that is absolutely, that does happen. So from your perspective, how do you, or how does anybody become a trusted source? And as any journalist would tell you who's done their job as a, journal, a professional journalist for years or decades, it's a day-by-day -day process. Every time you sit down in front of the microphone, every time you do an interview, every time you post that interview, your reputation is on the line. You're only as good or as credible as the last interview you did, right? Um, or in the case of a journalist, the last story they did. So it's a constant... Um, 
opportunity and also a constant challenge for you or someone else who is trying to put out content to make sure that everything you do is honest, as honest as it can be, uh, and, to, and to help people understand if there are moments when you are biased for whatever reason, you are sharing that with people and you're telling them why. Say, hey, you know, I'm, I did this story. I have to tell you I, I, I wasn't looking forward to doing it or I have a certain bias for or against it or whatever. And then you let the listener make up their mind for themselves whether or not they want to trust you or believe you. The, the idea that journalists are completely impartial, I believe, is a false one. No journalist comes to a story with, with completely uh, impartially, right? We all have opinions. We all have experience. We all have background. The difference is with a well-trained professional journalist, they learn how to acknowledge that at least to themselves and put that on the side as they go about the process of gathering, of news gathering and putting a story together. As a, an entrepreneur, what were your challenges when you first started out on your own? A lot, a lot of challenges. When I first left uh, my job at CNBC, first of all, it was at a time that you know my wife and I had to decide, okay, are we going to stay in Singapore or are we going to leave and maybe go back to the U.S. Or, or go somewhere else, right? We didn't really have any place in particular. Uh, we, we could have gone anywhere. Staying here, the first challenge after we decided we would stay here was setting up the business. Fortunately, in Singapore, they have made it extremely easy to set up businesses. In fact, you can literally set up a business online within about within less than a half an hour and then go down to uh, the accounting um, bureau here and one signature and you're basically you've got a business in Singapore. So they've made it super easy on their end. But as you're starting that business, of course, you have to go through all the steps of figuring out what you're going to do, how you're going to do it. What do you think will make money? What, you know, how are you going to survive doing this? So there were a lot of early challenges for me because I had to look at myself and take a hard look and say, ask the questions, you know, what do I think I can, what do I think I know? What skills do I think I have? And what do I think people will pay for as a consultant to hear from me or to learn from me? And, and that process is often the hardest one of all. Um, How long did it take you to do that? I got up, I would say probably within six months or so, I really had a clear idea of what I wanted to do. But then the process of actually doing it, it was a good two years that I felt like until I finally was, had the business up and running. I was, I was working, I, was, I had clients, I was doing things, but it, it took a couple of years to get, get up to speed. The biggest challenge I would say for many entrepreneurs and startups is cash flow, right? Because you, you may have a number of good clients, but you know, the, the, the cycle between when you do the work and when you get paid is a whole other story. And it looks a lot like a roller coaster uh, for many people um, if your pipeline is not particularly full. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, chasing money is always the, the bane of every entrepreneur's existence because you're always chasing people for money after you do the work. Or hopefully maybe you have an accountant who does it for you. But, but that, is a, that is a real big challenge is to be able to have enough cash reserve or um, have a backer in some way that can get you through that initial kind of startup where you've got this mass, these massive swings in cash flow. Wait, how did you decide where the market was? It was actually pretty easy, to be honest with you. Uh, after my work as a journalist, uh, I had a lot of contacts in the corporate world, people that I, you know, PR, comms, marketing people that I had worked with that, 
that had um, been sources for stories and that sort of thing. And so I just literally just started reaching out to them and saying, hey, I'm on my own now. Um, I'm providing this service of, of doing, you know, executive media training, presentation skills. Um, you know, I bring 20, almost 25 years of experience as an international journalist to the table. I think and I hope I can tell them best practice in terms of how to do a good interview and get messages across. And so I, I really just reached out to my network and let everybody know that I was in the business. Uh, and it, it really, uh, from that perspective, I knew enough people that it actually went pretty smoothly. Did you aim for uh, large companies or SMEs? At the beginning, almost exclusively MNCs, multinationals. To be honest with you, it was a very calculated move because large companies, first of all, understand the need to engage with uh, their stakeholders, whether it's the media or shareholders or clients or whomever. Uh, they, they get why it's important, and they're also willing to invest in doing it. They're not a, they have budgets to do it. SMEs and, and startups, not so much, right? It's a luxury for them. Yeah. Because, you know, it costs money, takes time. And the big companies all get that, and they all budget for it. So you started working with big companies. Did you find any resistance from the employees of those companies that they were now going to have to face a camera? Or were they keen to do that? Many people don't like the idea. And, and it wasn't just for TV. I mean, I, I trained people that would be doing print interviews or uh, working at con you know, delivering at conferences, for example, doing Q&A sessions or panel discussions. So it wasn't strictly TV. But TV was certainly part of it. Generally speaking, executives don't like to see themselves on TV or hear themselves on the radio, or they don't really like this idea of exposing themselves externally to whatever, whatever audience it is. So from that perspective, there was a bit of hesitation on most people's, you know, the reaction. Again, many people appreciate why it's important and are willing to sort of sit through whatever initial pain they might have in a full-day session, for example, or a two-day session. But very quickly they get, they understand how, why it's important and they get some skills themselves. And then after that, they're actually very, very comfortable with it. So roughly how long does it take them to start to feel comfortable? My experience has been that within a day, within an eight-hour session, we can take somebody who is a complete novice and get them to a very, very strong communicator, maybe not quite ready for hard talk on the BBC, you know, with Stephen Sacker who can rip apart somebody, maybe not quite ready for that, but certainly ready for a good uh, local or regional interview uh, that would be, uh, you, you know, something that they would need to do. And it could be TV as well. We can get them ready. We, we, a lot of times we'll do an on-camera simulation, uh, simulation exercises for two or three hours uh, in, the, in the course of that coaching. And they, they really get up to speed very quickly. The great news is, too, you know, most of the people that I work with are high-achieving executives. They're smart, right? They, they, they get it. You don't have to explain to them why or how. Well, maybe how, but not why. And, and they, they learn very fast, and they, they're, they're a quick study. Would you recommend executives now do their own uh, tweeting, their own um, social media, do, do their own blogging, vlogging? Do you think that's something that executives should do themselves? You know, I'm of two minds of this. First of all, it is always good for an executive to understand why social selling 
why you know running their own social media accounts is important. Somebody on LinkedIn, for example, or as you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, Twitter or whatever, it is really important and useful for an executive to see what's being said, what people are commenting on, what people are posting. It's it's kind of an uh, the social media is kind of an early warning system, if you will, and should be looked at looked at it that way to get an idea of what's happening, what's trending. Of course, a lot of executives push this function to. Uh, comms people or marketing people within their company. Others hire external companies, of which there are some very good ones out there that will handle their profile for them. So it's good that they're doing that, but I personally think that they should have some hands-on to know, first of all, what's being said out in the world, and then also specifically what they're saying and how they're responding. Can I, can I mention one more yeah. thing? One more trend that I've definitely seen over the past you know, 12 years of doing this is the emergence of, of young and very, very smart Asian leaders. When I first came to Asia in 1989, when I first arrived in Tokyo, the, the standard kind of Western company profile was a white male who was in his 50s or 60s running the office in Japan or Hong Kong or Singapore or wherever. And then he had underneath him a layer of probably Western um, middle or upper management. And then below that was local staff. Right? And in the course of the past, let's say 12 or 15 years even, we have seen companies become smarter and understand, you know what, we really do need to have local upper management, MD level, C-suite level. And this has been um, an unintended opportunity, quite honestly, for myself and others who do the kind of work that I do, because there's a whole new layer of, of up-and-coming Asian leaders who, who are, are hungry to learn how to be the best possible communicator that they can be. Not necessarily saying that the West is the only, you know, the Western style of communication is the only way, because it's not, but they certainly understand that if they're going to play on a a global playing field or even a larger regional playing field, they have to have certain skills that maybe they haven't had already. Um, and so this has been a very interesting transition to see, you know, the old white guys uh, are, are, you know, have been sent packing, many of them. And now you've got, you know, very, very talented, either trained in Asia or, or and educated in Asia or educated in the West, Europe and America. Um, leaders that are emerging, that are becoming very successful because they understand, obviously, the region, but now they're also starting to understand the ways of communicating cross-culturally. Do you think that's to do with um, the ability to tell stories? Because what I found was, um, from my experience in China, um, when I was teaching there, that I would often get resistance from people and students that would tell me, it's not our culture, it's not our way. And I remember a, a, a student, particular student that was in the classroom was supposed to be very shy. Um, but later on, I found out that she was singing solo in <laughs> front of a thousand people. Wow. <laughs> so my sort of definition of shy, what shyness was changed. Mm. And I think sometimes um, it's seen as this is our culture, but I also see Europeans and Americans that are also also shy in that sort of what we a typically Asian way but it's not 
um, perceived as being an, a cultural thing. So how, do you think that's changed in, your, in the recent years? It's starting to change. And I don't personally believe that it needs to change a lot. I think that people from whatever culture they're from should be should honor that culture and should be genuine to who they are and what they come from very clearly we, we you know we see that you know a chinese perspective on talking about your company is very different from an american perspective the former the chinese one being much more uh self-deprecating much more casual not casual but uh uh you know, less bra- less bragging kind of way, right? Whereas if you, if you have an American company, clearly executives are, are more loud and proud, uh, and, and many Western Europeans are too. So uh, there, is the, there is definitely a difference, and having, having to work with folks from different cultures like this, the, the coach needs to be sensitive to what those individual... Uh, individuals uh, look like and the cultures that they come from. One size does not fit all. And I often see executives come into Asia, you know, friend, former friends of mine or current friends of mine, people that I knew in, in uh, the U.S., for example, and they, hey, I'm coming to Singapore, I'm coming to Asia with my company. And they literally are a bull in the china shop. You know, they just come in and they just do pretty much everything wrong in terms of their communication. Everything from the minute they walk in the door and how they present their business card is wrong. Upside down, backward, one-handed, not looking at the other one, not receiving the other business card. You know, I mean, simple things that those of us who have lived in Asia for some time understand. All the way to the expectations during the meeting uh, and, and how the business deal or the negotiations or whatever should go. So, so it is very important, I think, that we respect and honor the traditions and the culture of, of the leader, whoever that leader is. Not try to change them, but try to make them the best that they can be within that tradition. So what do you enjoy most about your job? I have to tell you, you know, I, I love journalism. Uh, you know, it's what I studied in school. It's what I did for decades. And I'm, a, like I said earlier, I'm a total news junkie and I love the news. But I have to say that I really, really enjoy watching people learn how to, how to communicate and learn how to be a more effective communicator. Uh, and to be able to see a change in somebody within a very short time, like I said, within a matter of hours, it is really exciting. I was just, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was in, um, in uh, doing a program for an NGO called Relief International. And they work across the globe, 16 countries. They help 5 million people a day, typically in very, very you know, hostile or, or challenging circumstances, refugee camps, you know, that sort of thing. They're in Syria, they're in South Sudan, they're in Yemen, they're in, you know, they're all over the place, all the, all the places you can imagine. And I was working with all of their country directors who were together for an annual meeting, and almost all of them had never had any kind of, of communication, coaching, media training, that sort of thing. But they, but they were really hungry to figure out how can we tell our story? How can we help people outside of this NGO aid community understand who we are, what we're doing, the importance of it, and how they can help? Uh, and this kind of comes back to your storytelling comment earlier. How do you, how do you tell the stories of people that they're helping or the, the situations in which they work, which are often, I mean, unbelievably dire uh, and to me, when you ask, you know, what do I like about my job? You know, seeing that kind of transformation 
is, and getting paid to help affect it, amazing. So where would somebody begin with you? So you, somebody would enroll or join your course. Is it a course? Yep. Is it a course? Uh, I, I personalize it much more than a standard course. Yeah. Um, typically, uh, an individual would contact me, or more often than not, if I'm working with a big organization, the um, the comms, someone from the comms team or marketing team or HR uh, team would contact me and say, "Hey, we've got an executive or some executives who need to need to have some coaching in this. Um, you know, we need to be more forward thinking. We need to be more forward uh, uh, in our approach with." external audiences, you know, what can you do? And then we start a dialogue. It doesn't have to take very long, but, you know, it could be emails back and forth as to what exactly they want to achieve, um, how many people they want to do that with, what kind of uh, current issues their company or their organization faces. And then we, we very simply put, put a program together. And like I say, it could be a day-long program. In some instances, if they've had some prior training, uh, we can do a half-day program. Um, but we want to make sure that we give them enough time to really explore what the issues are that their company has and the best practice for how to deliver information, key messages about that company. So is there anything you, else you'd like to add? We live in an age, as I'm sure everyone who's listening to this podcast will appreciate, is so jam-packed with messages from people and noise in the in the communication landscape right a lot of podcasts a great one like this one included um you know all kinds of online opportunities to to listen to watch to read information and also of course on traditional television radio etc how does someone become clear concise confident hopefully even captivating in the way that they tell their story, they present their information. This, I think, is an absolute imperative in today's media landscape, media environment. Because if you don't do those things well, your voice is not, it might be heard, but it's not remembered. And it's very quickly lost in the noise of everybody else who is actually more, who could be more impactful. So I think that everyone, whether or not they're a corporate leader or, or you know, whoever they are, they need to really take a hard look at, at what they do in terms of their communication, how effective they are in terms of their uh, with their communication. And if they're not as effective as they want to be, it's actually quite easy to become an effective presenter of information uh, without, uh, without, too much, without too much difficulty. And on the other side, you mentioned there is a lot of information out there. Mm. Um, how do you personally um, filter or protect yourself from getting, getting information overload? Yeah, uh, yeah. you know, it's funny because I'm in a cycle, personal cycle right now of information overload. And it's really hard because I'm, I'm, I'm always tapped into the news. And I have to really catch myself. I have to stop myself from checking my phone every hour or so, you know, to get on whatever news sites. I, I'm on about six different news sites. Uh, I, I have, uh, I listen to seven or eight different podcasts, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I watch streaming news. I don't, I don't watch much terrestrial regular TV anymore. We, we cut the, the uh, cable cord uh, at our house 
about four years ago. Yeah, and we just, you know, why? Why why watch local, why watch TV news when you can get everything you need online, right? Um, and so I am in a personal cycle of overload myself right now. So I'm probably not the best person to ask how to manage it because I'm not managing it well. Um, but there's so much going on and I'm so interested on so many different levels. Everything from politics to the environment to, you know, any number of, of issues. So it is tough. I... I have been told, and I've been trying to see if I can get into this habit myself, which is, you know, making, almost like making a calendar appointment every day, two times a day to check the news, and the rest of the day don't. You know, people have told me, hey, take Facebook, take all your news apps off your phone, right? And so, you, the only time you can see that is you actually pull up a website, or at home on a desktop, you know, maybe in the evening or the morning. Because otherwise, during the rest of the day, what do we do? We keep, how many times a day do we check our phones? Like, oh, I mean, I speak for myself, a lot, too many. Do you know anyone that does manage it well? I know a few people that do, yeah, surprisingly. And they, they literally, they, they make those kinds of appointments with themselves. They have um, a, personal, um, a, a personal method of, of only checking their emails maybe like twice a day, maybe noon and 5 p.m. or something like that, and, and then responding at, that, at those times. And then the rest of the time they keep just for doing the work that they're supposed to be doing. Because otherwise, as I'm sure you can appreciate, you're constantly bouncing back and forth between checking and then, oh, and I have to respond to this person's email, and oh, then this story pops up on my alerts, and it's really tough to... It's really tough to turn it off. Yeah, well, I'm finding it tough as well because I'm trying to um, keep myself informed. Uh, I'm trying to be aware of um, what's, hap what's changing as well. And I do find sometimes that I will start off on the phone and then I end up looking at YouTube videos. Right? Like, yeah, yeah. And before so. you know it, you've gone down the rabbit hole and it's yeah. an hour later or two hours later. And you've learned some interesting things or you've seen some great videos or whatever, but you're no closer to getting your tasks done that you actually needed to do that day. Yeah. Right? yeah. And that's and, the problem for me. And then you feel guilty. <laughs> yeah. Guilty or upset or yeah. anxious or clients are screaming at you or whatever it is. Well, not yeah. screaming, but, you know, need responses. Well, what do you do to relax? Well, we have two kids. So we have, we have a, uh, a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old, and they're involved in sports, so we take them to their sporting activities. Uh, we in Singapore, in Singapore, we live right near the East Coast Park, so we spend a lot of time at East Coast Park, um, rollerblading, biking, walking. You know, try to do something three or four days a week anyway. Uh, and so, I think it's that kind of decompression. We used to do tr a lot of travel, but you know, travel has has gotten less and less relaxing over the years, especially with all the security stuff. Now, it just so happens that. Traveling in and out of Singapore is a joy. You know, with Changi Airport, it's a fantastic uh, 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 location to, to live. But um, I, generally, we spend spend more time at home with the family. Kids love to watch movies. We watch movies. My kids, surprisingly enough, are crazy good Monopoly players. Oh, they love Monopoly. So we, you know, we have family rounds of Monopoly and card games and things like that. So we tr we try to sort of go from our digital life to our analog life as much as we can as well to to disconnect from the digital stuff. Okay, Glenn, thanks very much. Neville, thank you very much. Great to talk with you. I wish you great success on this amazing podcast. And if anyone wants to get in touch with you? Sure. Uh, you can reach me at glenn at vanmediagroup.com. That's my email address. And Glenn with two N's. 
um, or my website is Van Media Group, one word, vanmediagroup.com. And I'll be putting links uh, into the show notes. Yeah, and please also reach out to me on LinkedIn. I, I do I actually do a lot more on LinkedIn than I do on my website or emails these days. So please reach out um, and, and connect with me on LinkedIn. I'd be happy to connect with anyone. Okay, thanks very much, Glenn. Thanks, Now I'll keep in touch. All right. All right. This brings us to the end of this episode of Asia Biz Stories, Entrepreneurs in Action. Now we need you to hit the subscribe button and head over to asiabizstories.com for more great information on how to take your inspiration and turn it into action. Thanks again, and we look forward to having you join us next time on Asia Biz Stories, Entrepreneurs in Action.